0: You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The heads of Hawaii's Democratic and Republican Party issued a joint statement condemning the violence in our nation's capital yesterday. Shereen Ostrov and Tyler De Los Santos said that violence, vandalism, and mob rule have no place in our republic. Regardless of politics or party, there is more that unites than divides us. While we have passionate debates and disagreements, violent lawlessness has no role in our political process, end quote. It is calm in Washington, D.C. this morning. That is where we reached Hawaii Congressman Maisie Hirono, who, like so many, are still a bit shell-shocked at yesterday's events.
1: Just uh, continuing to feel so shocked and appalled to know that we have a country where the president literally encourages this kind of riotous behavior, property damage, physical injuries, death. That We live in a country where we have a president like this, and I think it is really important to have him step down somehow and the quickest way for that to happen, as uh, I, I and others uh, are calling for, is for the vice president and the cabinet to deem the president unfit using the 25th Amendment.
0: Many people fear what damage he might do over the next couple of yes,
1: weeks. Yes, yes. He can do a lot more, and that's why I'm calling on the Trump administration, which has been full of sycophants and suck-ups, to finally wake up to their constitutional responsibilities and use the 25th Amendment. But short of that, I think the rest of us have to be very vigilant. I'm glad that, for example, the social media platforms have stopped Trump from being able to use their platforms to spread his lies. So that's good. And then if he tries to do something militarily, I expect the Joint Chiefs, to say, nope, this is uh, an unlawful uh, order, and we're not going to do it. So we just have to be vigilant. I am hoping that maybe at this stage of the game, rather than uh, all these cabinet secretaries resigning, which is so cowardly, that, that they should step up and say to the president, you need to step down because you are not fit to carry on even for the remaining two weeks of your presidency. And I think the House members got more of the brunt of the uh, assault on the Capitol. Uh, You saw them wearing gas masks and all of that. But the ease with which these rioters breached the perimeter of the Capitol is uh, more than concerning. I know that the House is prepared to uh, do uh, hearings and investigate what what, what happened. Uh, And uh, the Senate is still controlled by the Republicans. And I would welcome any hearings that they they undertake. So far, I haven't heard anything from them. But in the meantime, I, I believe that the House will go ahead under the democratic uh, control to advance some hearings on what happened. I think that needs to uh, proceed. And have you got any
0: word about the the health of the Police, the Capitol Police, that may have been injured, any of those officers.
1: I know that I think two of them were hospitalized. I hope that they are all right. But uh, this kind of breaching uh, of the Capitol, and you saw the images of uh, these rioters just walking around as, as like they own the place. It was really shocking, and, and also to carry the Confederate flag into the Capitol. So these were insurrectionists spurred on by the president, who, by the way, after all that, he still did not accept any responsibility or feel any sense of uh, uh, shame for what happened. In fact, if anything, he basically said, I love you, you know, like, good job, you can go home now. It's just appalling. This is why this person is dangerous and uh, his own people should remove him. That was
0: uh, Democratic Senator Maisie Hirono, who we talked to this morning. We also reached out to Representative Ed Case just after the Capitol incident, sent those inside scrambling for cover. Case tells us the delegation texted each other to make sure uh, everyone was safe. But Case was still pretty emotional about the day's events and angry that the president didn't do more to condemn the violence.
2: Well, I think it's just an incredibly dark you know, chapter in our, in our country's history. You know, It's one thing to protest uh, peacefully, uh, even very strongly. And it is just completely another thing to go over the line from that to what can only be classified as a violent assault on the U.S. Capitol that did damage to the Capitol and harmed people in the Capitol. We have we have uh, U.S. Capitol police that are that are hurt. Uh, Some of them, I believe, seriously. We have staff members. We may have. Uh, colleagues that are also uh, hurt. There were reports of gunfire. Wouldn't be surprising because there was no security or folks that were coming in with large bags. And so it was a complete breakdown of respect for the institutions in government. And in fact, it was about as, as direct a, an assault on our democracy as 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 we've seen by our own citizens. It, it just fills me with so much um, you know sorrow and and anger and disgust over that disrespect. And and it's compounded by the fact that. It didn't happen by accident. It wasn't spontaneous. It was incited. It was incited by the highest levels of our leadership. The the president being number one, and and for him to come out afterwards and not condemn it, he he refused to condemn it. I think all Americans or virtually all Americans would have wanted him to stand up and say, "My countrymen, this is wrong. This is not who we are." Uh, This not only needs to stop, but I condemn it personally. That's not, that's not the comment that he gave. The comment that he gave was to the folks that had perpetrated it, look, I know you're hurt, I know you, I know you don't understand, and, and I feel it, and I also agree this was a fraudulent election, and you know, let's all disrespect the institutions of government together, but go home. That's all he said. That's, that's, that's like nothing. And you know, I've, I had my own colleagues uh, stand up on the floor of the House and do the same, even worse. And they don't expect their words uh, to, to, to have consequences. And so there's, there's incredible responsibility to go around, but it rests at the top. That's unforgivable. Uh, but having said that, we're going to get through it. Uh, we are going to um, resume soon, I hope. And we're going to complete our job tonight and tomorrow and however long it takes. Uh, we're going to do what we are charged to do with under the Constitution, Uh, which is to decide who the next president of this country is going to be. And I wish that it happened in a different way, but we're going to get to that result. And we're all, I hope, going to look back and say, what the heck just happened and why? And maybe we will recognize that inciting and encouraging uh, the worst parts of our nature um, is not good for a democracy, which is an agreement among all of us uh, to a certain respect for our foundations, respect for our institutions uh, and respect for the results even if we don't like them we are going to put on show that this country does work can work and will work and and so although i am very very uh, emotional about what i just saw uh, because i love this country um, i'm very proud that i'm going to be a part of reasserting our values and and our institutions Uh, and we're going to go forward and we're going to have a president and we're going to have an inauguration and we're going to we're going to have a government
0: That was Democratic Representative Hawaii Case, uh, Ed Case. Hawaii's newest representative, Kai Kahele, was with his family at their new home in Washington when pro-Trump extremists breached the Capitol perimeter. Uh, The family sheltered in place throughout the day. HBR's Casey Harlow spoke to the freshman congressman yesterday afternoon before Congress reconvened to certify the presidential election results. Kahele tells us how he felt.
3: It's a mix of emotions. You know, it's sadness. It's... um... Anger, you know, it's deeply troubling, what what I saw today. You know, I have spent the last week or so here in our nation's capital. You know, my family has had a chance to experience a little bit of it, especially, you know, we were all sworn in on, on Sunday, just a few days ago. Uh, and to see some of our most sacred uh, places uh, be desecrated, be um, penetrated by anarchists, Uh, by seditionists today is a is a is a threat to our democracy and it's it's i I'm angered about it and you know it's it's really uh, disturbing
4: and you you are also a service member you have served uh, in our armed forces as well and you take an oath to defend the Constitution of the United States and the rights that everybody uh, has what are your thoughts as someone who has served
3: well, you're right. You know, I, I have taken an oath, um, serving in our armed forces to protect our democracy, just like I did again, you know, this past Sunday, uh, and to see, um, you know, I fought for our country, for our constitution, um, for that right to protest, peaceful protest or the right for free speech. Um, But that's not what we saw today. You know, this was not a peaceful demonstration of people that supported President Trump or, um, you know, passionate, spirited debate between Democrats uh, and Republican, um, you know, supporters. These were people that came to the Capitol, incited, um, you know, to, to provoke violence by President Trump. And, you know, it was an attack on our nation's democracy. And, and we must protect and preserve our democracy. And, you know, the peace must be restored here in the nation's capital. And, you know, it, it's tough for me because, you know, we're taught as military officers to, you know, respect authority. The President of the United States is the commander-in-chief of the armed forces. Um, but, but make no mistake, what I saw today— um, President Trump is an absolute disgrace to our country. He's a disgrace to our nation. Uh, And he's put the health and safety of Americans at risk today, the health and safety of the Capitol Police. And uh, I don't think we can wait 14 days for President-elect Biden. I think President Trump should be impeached right now. Article uh, 25th Amendment should be invoked. And he should be removed from office. And if that made it to the House floor... I would be, uh, you know, quick to support it, quick to vote for it.
4: Is there anything else that you'd like to add or anything else that you'd like our listeners to know?
3: Certifying this election means honoring and listening to the voices of 81 million Americans who voted for President-elect Joe Biden and Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. We must honor the will of the people. We must protect that democracy. And so... You know, again, I reiterate. You know, we, the Congress needs to show strength. It needs to show resolve. Um, it needs to show the American people that that um, you know we will fight for democracy, no matter what it, no matter uh, you know what it takes. And and I took an oath to protect our Constitution and our country against all enemies, foreign and domestic. And what we saw today, in my opinion, borderline is domestic terrorism. And uh, you know there are pipe bombs that were placed throughout the Capitol. Uh, people penetrated the Capitol. They penetrated the speaker's offices, the House and Senate chamber. Guns were drawn. They're trying to break down doors and windows. And uh, they should be prosecuted to the fullest extent of the law. And Congress needs to get back to work and certify this election. And I intend to do that as soon as as soon as my phone rings.
0: That was Hawaii Representative Kai Kahele talking to HPR's Casey Harlow. You know, we also reached out to Senator Brian Schatz's office but hadn't heard back. However, Honolulu Civil Beat's Nick Ruby spoke with Senator Schatz just before the melee broke out on the Hill. Ruby is based in D.C. Hi, Nick.
4: Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me on today.
0: Hey, so you were on your way to this ceremony when all this broke out. That's right. I had a conversation
4: with Senator Schatz earlier in the morning, just to get his perspective on the day. Because when we all woke up on January sixth, we had learned that Democrats had maybe retaken control of the Senate uh, after the results of uh, two Senate runoff races had come in in for, out, out of Georgia. And also that same day, we did know that the uh, that the Congress was set to certify the Electoral College results in the presidential election. Now, of course, uh, for weeks we've been hearing that there were going to be big protests uh, by Trump supporters at the Capitol, Um, but I don't think anybody really expected uh, what happened on on Wednesday to really happen. Um, When I talked to Senator Schatz that morning, he did look out his window and he saw the Capitol police were mobilizing dozens of them. Um, but you know, at the time, uh, he was hopeful that we weren't going to see the violence that we ultimately did see that day.
0: Well, I know you asked him, right? Is it, does it seem surreal?
4: Yeah. I mean, it, it there was just, there, there were a lot of surreal moments, uh, over the past four years, I think for a lot of different people, uh, for different reasons. But I think, uh, when there was especially, um, crazy in the sense that here we were talking about democrats potentially flipping the senate and these protests and for for Brian Schatz being in power on the one hand as a democrat in the united states senate and then worrying about the state of our democracy on the other
0: and you never made it into the capitol building right
4: i didn't i was actually on my way to the to the capitol and I started walking with some of the protesters uh, and taking photos of them as they were on their way to the U.S. Capitol. Uh, that was sort of part of my plan. Get a few photos, go inside, watch the ceremony, hopefully interview some members of our Hawaii delegation and write up a story about what we saw um, and, and what occurred. But uh, before that happened, I realized that things were Going off the rails a bit, I heard some loud banging. I saw the protesters uh, getting past metal barricades um, and pushing past the police officers that were that were on hand to sort of prevent the protesters from getting inside the Capitol. And then all of a sudden, everything broke loose. The police officers who I'd seen standing on the Capitol steps were gone. They'd been pushed back and replaced by a swarm of uh, a of of, of violent protesters, actually a mob, really, of people breaking into the the United States Capitol. And that moment was just very strange to witness. And at the same time, you had people chanting, screaming USA, um, as these people were essentially trying to subvert the democratic process.
0: Did you feel threatened in any way? Because I know, uh, looking at uh, some of the news clips, I saw that some of the protesters were damaging media equipment. Uh, I think it was APs, uh, cameras and and, uh, electronics. Uh, Did they know you were media? Uh, Some
4: people knew I was media. Uh, Clearly, I had a large camera with me uh, as I was uh, taking photos. I probably uh, stuck out a little bit. I wasn't wearing a red hat, for instance. Um, I wasn't draped in an American flag or waving a a trump sign or anything of the sort um and you know typically when you're at a a a trump event or a trump rally it does as a member of the press it it can be a little bit concerning because for the past four plus years we've had a president uh rail against the media describing journalists as enemies of the people now when you are the so-called enemy of the people in their midst and you're kind of alone Yeah, it can be a little bit concerning. And in terms of threats, uh, I only received one direct threat. Um, That was from a Trump supporter who uh, looked at me, was able to determine that I was a member of the media, um, and he started badgering me. Uh, He thought I was actually a a different reporter from another news outlet who covers uh, far-right extremism and hate groups. Um, Of course, I didn't engage with him. I just simply went about... Uh, doing my business and trying not to engage
0: okay well we're glad you're safe that you uh, were spared any violence there uh, but yeah uh, just I'm sure very scary uh, event to be covering but uh, thanks so much Nick
4: hey thank you for having me on I appreciate it
0: that was a uh, Honolulu Civil Beach reporter Nick Grube with today's reality check to read his uh, firsthand account uh, visit civilbeat.org This morning, HPR's News Director Bill Dorman joins us to talk about yesterday's lockdown of our nation's capital on The Long View, along with our contributing analyst, Neil Milner. You know, Bill, uh, let's start with you. Over your long career, you have covered politics on the Hill. What struck you knowing that those hallowed halls had been overrun?
5: Yeah, well, I should start with this is sort of back a little ancient history, back in the days of the George H.W. Bush administration as a producer for CNN in Washington and then a business news reporter for CNN um, in the uh, second term of the Clinton administration. And in both cases, I had a hill pass and was up at the Capitol quite a bit doing interviews. Um, And this pre-9-11, so that really was an open time in terms of going through and all that, but it have been back since. And the mobility quite restricted of course security a lot tighter since you know 9 11 and in following days but um yeah you know, i was surprised that there was not more preparation for this because you got the capitol police and and still even under the security that they have now it's set up for people going through people lining up in an orderly fashion sort of going through Uh, Security checks, the metal detectors, and, and it's funneled. It is not set up for a mob violence situation. What I was surprised at was that the Capitol Police didn't have the planning to call in in terms of reinforcements of planning for this, knowing that. There are limits to the security that they that they have there, and I'm still stunned. And and of course, that's many people are talking about that today, and there are going to be ongoing investigations. But that's that's the immediate one because on in the Capitol building itself, there are few entrances. But again, when you have a mob situation, that's an entirely different state of affairs.
0: Yeah, I mean, I had my first visit to the nation's capital just a couple of years ago, so, you know, I was all starry-eyed, but I recall all the extra security. But what about you, Neil? I mean, you've probably visited the the, the capital.
6: Well, I haven't visited it for a long time, and, um, you know, you may have been impressed by how much more security there is than there used to be, but if anybody looked at what was going on yesterday, it was pretty clear that there wasn't much security at all. By the way, the uh, chief of the the capitol police and the sergeant at arms of the senate have uh, both resigned so um... and i think it's really important to understand the symbolic dimensions of the race issue here and some really interesting reasons uh, why the debate may have been why the security may have been related to race first thing of course is that almost any african-american person would say they treat us differently it turns out, if you look at the research, it's absolutely true. If you look at the right-wing protest and the left-wing protest between late between early May and late November, someone's done pretty thorough research on it. The right-wing protests were far less likely to be intervened with by law enforcement, and when they were, and these are uh, when they were. Um, they were much more likely to use violence against black protesters against white pro- than against white protesters. Most of these black protests were Black Lives Matter. Ninety-three percent of them involved um, uh, peaceful protest. And one of the reasons, two reasons for this, that we have to put in this context, one of which is that there certainly is a kind of implicit, if not racial bias, among police officers in these kind of things. The other thing is that there is. Uh, fairly important, an important overlap between law enforcement and people who belong to these right-wing, extreme right-wing protests. So it's it's what you see and what is the importance and the significance of what you see. So yeah, the first thing you probably have to deal with is why there was nobody in front of these buildings. Um, But the second thing is to understand the kind of mindset that played a role in this and the importance of this symbolically to racial justice.
0: I saw a little video clip of uh, uh, a black uh, officer uh, trying to hold back the crowd You know, by himself. He was running up the yeah. stairwell, and I think he had a, a pipe or a stick, and I mm-hmm. fell for him. I, I was afraid he was going to get lynched
6: saw valiant white officers too, and it really isn't a, the the fact of the matter is is why were those poor guys in there or people in there pretty much by themselves having to you know having to hold this this sort of thing back? And I'm saying part of it is part of it is strategy and tactics, and part of it is this kind of overall notion about race and who's threatening and who's not.
5: That's a hugely important point, too, that Neil makes on if you look at the preparations for Black Lives Matter rallies in D.C. And, and the type of even riot gear preparations that were there on the law enforcement side, the presence that was there. So it's not as if this could not have been uh, you know, called to, to action, to have that in place. But the, the contrast was, was just blinding in, in terms of what... Well, what...
6: And, and two things, Bill, to support that, uh, one of which I think people are not sure of, but I've seen it reported in the press, one of which is that the National Guard had some fairly specific orders to stand down on this one early mm-hmm. on in, in preparation. The second one, and I read this at a reputable source, said that it was Mike Pence who ultimately called out the National Guard rather than Trump. How he was able to do that, I don't know. It may suggest something about the craziness and uh, uh, weird stuff that's going on in the White House. So if you watch the response, God knows none of us are law enforcement or are tactical specialists here. But if you watch the response, and especially if you listen to the ex-police chief of the Washington, D.C. Police Department, the Metropolitan Police Department, you had to see that there wasn't anybody there early on who could do anything about it. The reporters were talking about it because they were they were frightened. Yeah, uh, you
0: know. I was stunned, too, to hear that, yeah, as far as like, you know, the violence or to have something like this uh, happen, you know, this was the first incident in a very long time.
6: Yeah, I think it's a mistake, however, to focus just on the law enforcement thing here, because this is obviously a much broader issue. And let me say something about complicity here. You know, I have a piece today in Civil Beat about polarization that I wrote well before this happened. And it's a little nerdy and historical, but it tries to deal with how you bring about change in a a sort of even-handed way. But I think it's important to understand the degree, the breadth of complicity in this whole business on the part of people who identify as Republicans, all the way from Republican voters through, of course, Trump himself. Let's start by saying Trump is the catalyst, and we don't want to get away from this. But if you go back to the Hawaii Republican Party here that initially, when Donald Trump ran for office, said he's too nice, that we're too nice for him here, this party has become Trump-supported. The day after the presidential election, the the, uh, Oahu Republican Party sent an email out saying the national election was stolen and we're raising money for Trump. So it started right there. You had a large number of Republicans who didn't believe in the election. You had a Republican who ran for Congress here who says, you know, there's no data to support that uh, Republican, that Trump actually won. But I know he did in my heart. And then you have the Republican elites that all the way along the line have either made excuses for Trump or have actively supported him in terms of um, in terms of the election. So. The the important thing, I think, to understand that people have to understand is how much polarization in this country, how strong it is, and how much it's based on what party you identify with. In this case, I want to just – so, and that's equally strong. But in this case, I want to show how – what kind of road that leads you down.
0: Well, for the record, we did reach out to and Ostrov and the uh, Republican Party uh, headquarters uh, for comment, and uh, we did not get a call back. But, Bill, you want to talk about just the historical yeah.
5: context? Well, I was going to ask, Neil what happens to the energy that that represents within the Republican Party because there are clearly folks that were supportive of that. and. You know, there was talk previous to this of how Trump could be kingmaker role or whatever after he leaves office. What happens to the energy of people motivated by that after this event?
6: Well, I think that's an open question. I mean, from a political standpoint, which is how most of the people who are uh, the elites that supported Trump see it, I think the the defeat of the Republican uh, Senate senator candidates in in Georgia is more important than what you saw yesterday in terms of changing the mind of the Republican Party. I think it's an open question whether the party changes very much for two reasons. One, a general reason. Parties don't change that quickly. The Democratic Party, it took them years to move away from the kind of racism of the South. Parties don't change that quickly. Secondly, you have 74 million voters who voted for Trump, Um, If you think that 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 automatically is going to bring some kind of change that may threaten that base, that's, that's naive. So when you listen to Josh Hawley and you listen to these other senators pontificate about the electoral process, and miss the fact about the courts, that had something to do with it. So I'm saying it's an open question whether these things, whether the Republican Party will change. Too early now, a lot of emotion, but once the emotion goes away, that doesn't mean that change is going to happen.
0: Anything else you want to add, Bill, just about the you know historical context of this? We hadn't seen this since the 1800s, I think, right?
5: Uh, yeah, the British came to town and burned dur- during the War of 1812 and, and 1814. So the capital was still being built, and the, the British burned it. But, uh, yeah, it had not been breached since then.
0: Yeah, uh, stunning visuals that are burned in my mind. Mm-hmm. But thank you so much. Thanks so much, Neil. Sure. Uh, We have been talking about the process of democracy with Neil Milner, retired professor of political science and contributing editor of our segment, The Long View. Uh, News director Bill Dorman will stay with us to give us an update on Hawaii's latest vaccine plan.
7: Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from UH Manoa's Osher Lifelong Learning Institute for ages 50 and older, with virtual courses designed to engage the mind and enrich lives. Virtual open house Sunday, January 10th. More by searching Osher Hawaii. This Saturday on our sister station, HPR2, From the Top will feature two local siblings recorded in the Atherton studio. Violinists Elong and Ishinguo. Perform Pablo de Sarasate's Navarra, Op. 33. They'll be accompanied by Dr. Thomas Yi on piano. Join us in celebrating these talented local artists. That's this Saturday at 10 a.m. on HPR2, your home for classical music. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to strengthening island communities by donating ocean shipping for food bank networks, including Oahu's Hawaii Food Bank and Neighbor Island Food Banks. Matson.com.
0: More vaccines are arriving on island this week, and the state is sharing the plan to get the precious cargo into the arms of those on the priority list. HBR's Bill Dorman has been tracking this story. Uh, so what can you tell us, Bill?
5: Yeah, well, as you know, this is a continuing process on the rollout. And the way this starts is there are general guidelines from the CDC, but each state makes its own rules. So here in Hawaii, first up, have been those frontline health care workers, about 40,000 of them, actually, uh, residents of Long term long-term care homes, about 10,000 of them. And Kapuna really remain at the front of the line for the next stage as well, those 75 and older. Uh, Part of what state health officials call phase 1B, that's about 109,000 folks. And then you've got the frontline essential workers, and this is where apparently there is some discussion and back and forth of who does that mean? Well, it includes first responders, correction officers and staff, emergency service dispatchers, essential workers for federal, state, local governments, transportation workers at harbors and docks, utility workers who are critical, teachers, childcare, education support staff, and the US Postal Service employees. Um, But an important difference with other states is in terms of the kapuna, this is not first come first serve uh, operation and this was uh uh libby char was very careful to point that out the other day saying that you know you may have seen some of these pictures from florida where the nice. seniors line up Lineed overnight up, yep. and they've got their chairs out and uh, so state health director dr libby char says that's not going to be the way it's done in hawaii
0: the way we're doing it here is that you will go online and you will make a reservation make an appointment and that way we can match the doses of vaccine to the people and the capacity that we have for vaccine that day it'll also kind of streamline it so you're not showing up in the morning and waiting all day long by doing that we make sure that we have enough vaccine for those that have the appointment and it also allows us to make sure that the storage of that vaccine because remember there are really special storage considerations for these vaccines so we make sure that we're storing the vaccine safely and that way we can match it up and, and get people vaccinated safely and hopefully very smoothly
5: again those temperature considerations especially for the pfizer uh, vaccine but uh, even the moderna one you know you need to, to keep uh, uh, refrigerated phase 1c then uh, as they say going from march to may that's going to bring in those age 65 to 74 and those with chronic diseases that's about 400,000 people in the state, and this is where the numbers really start to grow. That's likely to continue through the spring. Two and three phases, more the broader general population, likely early summer. More vaccines are coming, but the timing is somewhat uncertain, and this was interesting in terms of going through this at the, at the news conference because the, the federal government plays such a role in this, and so the state doesn't have – uh, total control over how much they get. The allocations for the state uh, are done by the the Operation Warp Speed folks on the federal level, and Dr. Char said that she and her team usually find out on Thursdays about the allocations for the following week. So you know you can you can plan and talk about planning, but it's it's somewhat limited on that. That's so that's on the the supply side. The other Part of this, of course, is the demand side. Uh, Josh Green, lieutenant governor, says some of the outreach that they've done on people's willingness to take the vaccine shows that that still is a bit of a mixed picture here. So, for example, he says about 55 percent of the people, he said, are ready to be vaccinated. Another 25 percent or so, he said, would be in the category of what he called open to being convinced, um, that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> and, and we'll see. So that's, that's not a uh, you know, a total slam dunk. But together, if, that, if you put those together, that's about 80% of the, the population, about 1.4 million. Um, but then meanwhile, the virus continues to roll. So as you know, Lieutenant Governor is an emergency room doctor, course, and he went through the recent trend of changing case numbers, which does reflect a rising trend. On December 1st, right after Thanksgiving, our seven-day averages were the follow uh,
7: as follows. 80 new daily cases on average, that seven-day average, 1.7% positivity rate, and 56 individuals were hospitalized. So that's where we were right after Thanksgiving before you could see uh, the, the starting part of that little surge there that we had. And here we are on uh, January 5th. We have had some surge over the holidays. We've had a seven-day average now of 139.6 new daily uh, cases on average. Our positivity rate has gone to 3.48%, and we've had about 100 people in the hospital. It's 104 today. It was 101 yesterday. So this gives you an idea that there has been somewhat of a surge after the holidays.
5: And that, again, we're, we're not yet seeing numbers for Christmas and New Year's out of this. So that's a, uh, that's a moving target, but it's something to, to very much keep an eye on.
0: Right, and uh, you do mention that uh, we normally will get updates, I guess, uh, on how much vaccines uh, will come into the state. Today's Thursday, so mm-hmm. uh, hopefully DOH uh, uh, can, um, you know, share some of that information. We plan to talk to Dr. Libby Char uh, later today, and hopefully she can give us the latest, and, uh, you know, hopefully we get, we get our share.
5: And it's true. Again, I would say part of this story, though, is also that that moving target nature of it. You know, you, you can make plans on a local level and on a statewide level, but it's not just the state and local folks involved, uh, the federal government being a huge part of this.
0: Well, as we saw with the testing, the surge testing mm-hmm. that took place uh, out on the freeway. Uh, you know uh, that was a massive effort, and it was rolled out very quickly. There were a, little, a few snafus, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, at least with this, we've got some time. Uh, we're we're working through the process. If there are any hiccups, we can. Uh, hopefully improve the process so then, we if we do get larger trays and larger batches, that we can expedite things.
5: That's, that's a pretty key point too, the scaling up of this, and DOH is looking at, at locations even to, to where can you do this in where you can inoculate a lot of people in a relatively short period of time, you can get the turnaround going, uh, but do that in a way that still people are, are socially distant, where it's safe, uh, and makes sense.
0: Yeah, I I know some people are anxious and want to get the vaccines and maybe want to jump in line. Others are just willing to wait their turn. Uh, I'm not in the 75 category. (laughs) But, um, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, be interesting to see how this all uh, plays out as we get more vaccine, as they can get them out to the neighbor islands. Uh, you know, uh, because that's the logistics are an important part of this.
5: And as also uh, one hopes that that more vaccines will be coming online as well as part of this so that we're not just dealing with Pfizer and Moderna, but there will be a a broader uh, uh, and perhaps not as temperature sensitive uh, set as well.
0: And there's also talk about this uh, virus mutating. um, But with what we know, we understand that this vaccine will uh, hopefully protect you from, you know, whatever uh, mutant variant that develops.
5: So far, that research, yes, does seem to indicate that. All right. Okay.
0: Well, thanks so much, Bill. You bet. We have been talking with HPR's News Director, Bill Dorman, about the rollout of vaccinations across the state. You know, we did talk to Brigadier General Moses Kau'iwi of the Hawaii National Guard yesterday afternoon. Uh, we were discussing the rollout of the vaccines to all of its members this week as they moved island to island in a touch-and-go mission to get as many of the guards' men and women vaccinated as quickly as possible. Here's a snippet of some audio as the team went across uh, Hawaii inoculating the staff. Come on up, sir. Verify your full name for us. Full name is Clinton and Haina.
3: All right, sir, big folk. That's it. You're afraid of needles or had a reaction before? All right, perfect. All right, you have all your paperwork and everything? You're good to go.
8: Just exit to the right.
6: Here's your cat card. Here's today's date with today's shot. Here's the date you're gonna come back and get the second one, okay? So you keep
0: this, don't lose it, all right? Okay. Okay, thank you. And so that audio was a, a kind of a, a, a feel for how these planes touched down from airport to airport as they went across Hawaii, uh, trying to inoculate as much of the Hawaii Guard staff as possible. Here's our conversation with General Moses Kau'ivi.
8: We got our allotment from Tripler and went on a C-17 and got our personnel inoculated on all counties, and then we are doing some on Oahu. We also had vaccinations a few weeks ago up at uh, tripler for the Wahoo personnel uh, directly from them, so we're we're on track to ensure we got as much as possible uh, vaccinated. The vaccination is voluntary from our personnel; uh, we're not mandating it. And uh, we got approximately over 300 personnel vaccinated already.
0: How much more to go?
8: Well, we got over 800 on the joint task force for this first phase. As we are available and ready, we'll start vaccinating as much as we can.
0: When you rolled out this this week, you. You did something kind of remarkable, I understand, that, that you just uh, touched down on different islands and did this pretty fast. Yes.
8: What we did was we got up the uh, vaccine from Tripler early in the morning in the appropriate refrigeration containers, loaded onto the C-17, and our team got everything ready. We had the pilots. We had our medical team. Our medical team was consisted of Major Galdones was in charge and Master Sergeant Pitt uh, monitoring the, the vaccination team. Uh, within the c-17 we flew uh first to the big island uh hilo airport and we uh, had our soldiers awaiting and we lined them up got them into the c-17 inoculated them in the c-17 and uh, then they went out and waited in the waiting area to ensure that uh, they were monitored in case any adverse reactions occurred so far we had no adverse reactions of over the over 300 we've uh, vaccinated and then we did likewise on Maui and then Kauai.
0: Okay, so had you ever done something like that before?
8: In this specific activity, no, it was actually never done before. In fact, in discussions with uh, Tripler, uh, Colonel Bowman, he uh, he wanted uh, us to share some of the information after we complete this, kind of like an after-action after review, lessons learned, because he believes this may be probably the first ever attempt to do something like this uh, using a C-17 It's highly likely that we're the only ones who've done this so far across the nation. But I'm not sure. Maybe somebody did it out there. But as far as I know, I believe we are the first ones to use the C-17 to inoculate in this manner through the C-17.
0: That's incredible. And so uh, the vaccines that we got were then from the military's portion. It it didn't come from what was allocated to the state. Is that correct?
8: Yes. So through uh, the Department of Defense, we were allocated... uh, just about the same numbers we got for the um the task force specifically for first responders, but it wasn't a it wasn't a state issue. it was a um department of defense issue to through the Department of Defense down to tripler so all of our vaccines are worked out as far as the numbers up at um, Department of Defense and National Guard Bureau, and they calculate how much they're going to push at a certain given time and because Hawaii has the tripler um, which has the refrigeration units. The, the Pfizer specifically, uh, it goes directly to them. And then we coordinate with Tripler to get our allotment to the appropriate amount that we can vaccinate in, in the given time that we've got and uh, coordinate that way to get make sure that we get all the vaccines, the appropriate vaccines, and everyone who needs the vaccines inoculated.
0: When the time comes for the second shot, will you use the same drill?
8: We're probably going to use that as well as potentially use um, our uh, aviation, other aviation it's depending on um, the availability of the aircraft as well as um, on the timing of the shot. For example, if we um, we have the CH-47s ready, which is our helicopter aviation assets, we'll probably use that and set up a temporary um, station outside the CH-47 or inside the CH-47 helicopter because there's enough space where we can probably have a, a couple of stations.
0: So you're just working out the logistics. What is the most uh, efficient way to be able to dispatch these shots?
8: Yeah, it depends on the available aircraft. So we have different contingencies in place. It would be uh, C-17 or it'll be a CH-47. The C-17 worked well this time, and uh, we actually plan to go catch up on the first dose with, with other members we couldn't catch because of work shifts and other things uh, next week with uh, our uh, CH-47 helicopter as, as well as our Black Hawk helicopter. So multiple type of um, options based on the circumstances we're facing.
0: Okay, but do we just want to be able to make sure that the vaccines are, are, are used as soon as we get them?
8: Yes. Yeah, so that was one of the critical things of planning. So when we started this planning, we had to ensure we had contingencies in place. One to ensure that if anything happens to the aircraft or stalls or delays, we would have plans in place that with alternate aircraft that could continue our mission to get our guys uh, inoculated. And then at the same time, we had other um, plans for the next next phase on on how we would do the the phase with, with the same same plan but a different. Types of situations in case something happened where we had to either convert from a C-17 to a CH-47, or convert from a C-17 to a Black Hawk, or from Black Hawk to CH-47.
0: Okay, so it just depends on what assets are available at the time.
8: Available, yes.
0: Okay, and you know we have been watching as this the news about this uh, mutant virus, and it, it developed uh, among I think a couple of guardsmen on the ma- on the mainland. Here in the U.S. So that was uh, interesting to watch how that was unfolding.
8: Yeah, uh, for us, I haven't heard anything from us. People got tested on our side. We haven't heard anything on any mutant um, variations on on the guard here.
0: That was kind of interesting when they they said, you know, these guardsmen hadn't been on any trips and... They were found to, you know, have this uh, mutation, and so the you know, the question was, well, well, where did they get it? I mean, because you you folks are being dispatched in so many different places. You're yeah, helping yes. with, you're helping with the testing. Yes. you know, you're helping uh, uh, at the airports.
8: Yes. Yeah, so for for us, because of the the spread of where we are, uh, you know, we we we'll, we could we've been good though. Our uh, we've been protective we've been practicing mitigation measures so I'm confident that uh, we, based on on, on uh, where we're at as far as the mission and and, and the health of our people we, we've been doing very well but we we also have that threat like you mentioned because we've been in the prisons helping with the swabbing we've been in several housing areas um, where, where clusters developed to, to help with the swabbing we've been at the airport to do the screenings and uh, various locations some of the Islands, we've been helping with, uh, especially on Kauai, with the, with the checks with the police department on um, making sure that everybody's following the rules.
0: The quarantine
8: breakers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you know, checking up with the police, and and the police takes lead. We don't we don't take lead on those things, but uh, we're there to support them, and we're there in and making contact with the public. Um, therefore, from as far as exposure, potential exposure, we got we got a high rate of potential exposure based off of what we're doing, but. Overall, uh, our our soldiers and airmen have been really good at uh, protecting themselves. I'd like to say that, you know, the the Hawaiian National Guard soldiers and airmen, they've been a tremendous help to the state, and they made me proud of how they've been just uh, portraying themselves out there, helping the people, doing the missions that the very very professional with with the public and helping out as best as they can with, with the missions that's been given to us.
0: That was a Brigadier General Moses Koevi talking about the mass vaccination program. It rolled out this week. The Army and Air Guard managed to go island to island in one day, inoculating all its personnel with the COVID-19 vaccines. Koevi says while he's been busy with the vaccine mission, he has also been monitoring the situation in our nation's capital and the use of the National Guard to help keep the peace. He says the Hawaii Guard is working with local law enforcement to keep an eye on the rallies being held in Hawaii. The state sheriffs were able to handle yesterday's gatherings, which were peaceful. The only incident yesterday was when demonstrators tried to raise a Trump flag on the pole fronting the Capitol building.
7: Support for HPR comes from Christina Hom and the Parks Group at Morgan Stanley in Honolulu, Wealth Advisor and Institutional Consultant for Social and Environmental Investments, 525 Morgan Stanley Smith Barney LLC, Member SIPC.
6: We crave connections. It's human nature to want to know what's happening in your community, in the news, and with each other. And we need those connections now more than ever. Members supported Hawaii Public Radio helped keep you connected, engaged, and enriched. Wherever you are, whatever's happening in the world, stay connected on the HPR app or ask your smart speaker
7: to play Hawaii Public Radio. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at incanen.com.
0: That is it for today. Up tomorrow, we plan to hear more from State Health Director Libby Char about getting the public's confidence up with this new COVID vaccine. Give us some feedback. Got questions about the vaccines or anything else you may have heard on our air? Call our Talk Back line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Connect with Facebook and Twitter. I'm Katherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.